Hey guys, I wanted to invite you to a special event we're having from August 11th to the 13th in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. We're going to be talking about the future of the monetary system at a very historic venue too. We're going to have speakers like Mike Green, Lynn Alden, Pippa Malgram, Grant Williams, Dan Tapiero, Jeff Booth, and a variety of others. And maybe you will even have a special guest as well. So uh, come join us. I'm really excited about it and uh, hope you're there. All right, welcome back to Generational Arbitrage. I'm Tyler Neville. I'm sitting down with one of my favorite macro thinkers, Mike Howell. Mike is the founder of Cross Border Capital in London. They run about a billion dollars in assets under management across a swath of systematic and quant funds. He is the author of Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity, and he specializes in watching global liquidity flows which, in my opinion, portends future asset prices pretty much better than any fundamental analysis I've seen. So, Mike, welcome. Thanks very much, Tyler. And I agree. <laughs> Liquidity is yeah. all important. Exactly. One of the things I find so fascinating is like after 40 years of globalization, you get these fundamental analysts that just still dig so deeply into like these minutiae. And you have a globalized world where these capital flows, like, are trillions and trillions of dollars, yet you are one of the few lone wolf people who follow this stuff. How is that? I think it's pretty straightforward is that if you start from a fixed income background, which I, I did, uh, you realize pretty much that what's moving rates and actually what's moving Forex markets for that matter is basically liquidity and capital flows. And so that's the starting point. So if you say that uh, the fixed income markets and the forex markets don't influence stock markets, then you know I'll come quietly, but clearly they do. Uh, they're the key factors, and what drives those are liquidity and capital flows. Uh, it's as straightforward as that. And I think the you know the the fact is that if you look at let's say traditional valuation measures like PEs, they work very well at the at the micro at the stock level. I mean they're a well established benchmark, but they don't work very well at the macro level. I mean, if you'd have been using PE multiples, uh, you know, let's say over the last 40 years, you'd have always been selling the U.S. market and always buying Europe. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a great investment by any means. Yeah, I think uh, not to knock John Hussman, but uh, he's been doing that for quite some time and has been on the wrong right. side of the trade. But um, anyway, to move on, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of your background and then talk about your research process, if that helps. Yeah, no, let's uh, let's go for it. I mean, I uh, I started off uh, pretty much the Salomon Brothers um, when Salomon's became uh, an international firm. Clearly, they had a big U.S. footprint in the fixed income markets, uh, and they started to go international around about the mid 1980s. And I joined the firm in '86 uh, uh, in London, and uh, I was on the uh, on the asset allocation side there. Uh, and one of the things that we began to realize was that with the, uh, uh, with the Louvre Accord, the Plaza Accord, the deregulation of uh, capital flows, that global money or global liquidity, as we started to call it, was really a critical factor to understand. And so we looked around for ways of monitoring that, realized that actually there weren't any benchmarks available at the time. So actually I had to go away and try and dig out uh, data on this concept. And you know we haven't looked back since. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Uh, that's our, our sort of you know, modus operandi, and that's what we look at. We look at global liquidity, and we find it's a it's a prescient and powerful tool. Yeah, and, and it's, anyway, it's predictive, I, right? Yeah, very predictive. It's very, and then basically to to sort of finish off uh, a sort of 
quick uh, thumbnail of Korea. Uh, after the uh, the Salomon Brothers uh, bond uh, bond debacle, let's call it that, uh, the firm became a lot more domestically orientated. And one of the things that I felt strongly at the time, this is around 1990, 1991, was that emerging markets were likely to be uh, the powerhouse uh, uh, of the next few years. And uh, consequently, Salomons were not really interested in emerging markets at that time. And so I moved to Bearings, which were, uh, you know, then the uh, the main the main uh, bank for looking at the emerging markets. Now, maybe with hindsight, <laughs> uh, both both firms have had their turmoil, but um, that was the history. And after uh, after the experience at uh, Bearings, I then thought, well, okay, let's go separate. And uh, I set up cross border capital around about the late 1990s. And been running strong ever since. Yeah, and, and so can you dig into to your process a little bit, um, and then I kind of want to ask you. You know, it's it's very fascinating hearing your background because you were basically at the crux of like globalization at pretty much some of the biggest banks in in the world, and you saw the the opening up of of global markets, but some in in a regional sense, like that you saw them how they they stayed, I guess. Uh, kind of uh, obtuse in the way they, they view things. Yeah, I, I reckon that's right. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the history of international investing, I mean, it goes, it stretches back further. I think you can look at some landmark uh, events, uh, you know, basically the end, end of Bretton Woods, which uh, effectively at the time freed up the private sector and private sector banks and capital flows was clearly uh, a major, major event. Uh, I think you can go back, uh, you know, uh, go back to the mid 1970s and the ERISA Act in the US, which I think was 74, which basically meant that uh, you had to get more funding uh, in your pension schemes. And so the idea of buying duration was basically established. So effectively, uh, that sort of, if you like, established in many ways the investment management industry. Um, uh, and there was a sort of search for international as capital flows uh, began to become more important and capital controls were, were dropped. They were dropped by the UK in 79 under Thatcher, the first thing she did. And then Japan, pretty shortly afterwards, did much the same thing. And if you look at, you know, look at it from a US perspective, the US started to receive huge flows into security markets uh, from the early 1980s onwards. I mean, look at the effect that uh, Japanese investors had on the US Treasury market, you know, absolutely huge effects. So, you know, those are those are sort of landmark events. And then one can go on and say, you know, there are other, uh, you know, other signal events. And I think, you know, one of the key ones uh, which people don't really speak about is allowing China into the World Trade Organization in 2001. And that was a, that had a tremendous effect on uh, affecting not just trade flows, but actually more particularly capital flows. Uh, it gave China a lot of financial muscle. Uh, it developed a huge trade surplus and it had to deploy that surplus. And the effects of that deployment we're we're kind of witnessing all the time now. Um, you know, effectively, one of the things we argue is that uh, the rise of China and the effect that China had effectively reversed the polarity of the global financial system, and it led to a number of developments, which I mean, one would maybe not associate directly with the rise of China, but for example, the uh, the rise of the repo, uh, collateralized financing, was largely because of that because effectively Western banks became inter uh, disintermediated from funding. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those uh, sovereign wealth funds or 
foreign exchange uh, foreign exchange management pools that basically developed in the wake of China's rise couldn't put their money into Western banks, but they wanted short-term, uh, highly secure instruments, which were basically things like repos or asset-backed commercial paper or these type of instruments. And that led to this sort of huge demand for safe assets in the world economy. And, you know, we haven't looked back or whatever since in many ways. It's yeah. these gyrations that we have to suffer. And and so you follow all this stuff, which is it's it's like a the the easiest thing you can do, but also the hardest thing to, to develop a framework. And I think I, in a previous interview, you said it's like insider trading, except all the the information is actually public. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, basically, at Salomon Brothers, the, the, the bond traders would often think that, you know, watching capital flows and looking at, uh, you know, the, the flow of business was effectively the you know, nearest thing to insider information. But it was it was perfectly legal. Uh, you just yeah. saw where the flows were going. And that's the critical factor. And that's what we're trying to do at a more macro level is look at where the, where the money's flowing. I mean, you know, after all, you know, all money that's anywhere must be somewhere. Uh, and it's a question of mm -hmm. tracking it the direction of these flows and so you know one of the interesting things you're, you're seeing right now for example is this huge uh, move of money back into the fixed income markets yeah well I want, I want to touch on that uh, later to start though um, one, one of the things you, you've talked about is global you say global liquidity is a measure of balance sheet or the capacity of taking on capital it's not about the cost of capital the only thing right. that matters is if the debt can be rolled over and you essentially yep. call it like a giant refi refinancing scheme, which is like that dynamic. You said all the international investors put their money into, you know, the U.S. banking system or commercial paper or repos. Right. And right. that whole process of refinancing that debt kind of keeps the system going. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, let, let me let me sort of try to try and elaborate a little bit. If you look at yes. the textbook view, the textbook view uh, puts primacy on interest rates. Okay, now that's that's not such a bad idea if you've got uh, a world economy that's effectively driven by capex, uh, where new capex is the driving force, and therefore what you're looking at is your return on capital versus the cost of capital. Hey, you know I'll come quietly. Interest rates matter, but that's not the world we're in. Okay, capex has long disappeared as a driver of economies. And, you know, what you're looking at in financial markets is they're not new capital raising uh, vehicles. They're basically uh, ways of refinancing existing debt. And if you look at the amount of transactions that go on in financial markets, uh, you know, our very simple measures would say that you've got probably uh, for every one dollar of new capex, you've got four or five of refinancing flows. So the markets have become dominated by these by this re refinancing. Now, you can think of that in just a very straightforward way. I mean, what have we got out there? We've got $300 trillion of debt, okay, with an average maturity of what? I mean, probably under five years. So you've got $60 trillion of debt to roll over every year. I mean, these are eye-watering amounts. And so to roll over that debt, uh, think of it in terms of maybe a home mortgage, okay, uh, that if you've got a mortgage of 20 years, let's say, uh, and you, you're living in your house, and you need to roll that over, you're not really caring too much whether what the interest rate is. I mean, clearly it matters. But the paramount thing is, can you get the roll? Because otherwise you're going to be kicked out. So what you, if you're refinancing your debt, what you basically want is the roll. You want to be able to refinance that position 
And so balance sheet capacity is really the critical thing, the balance sheet capacity for the financial sector. So it can essentially facilitate that role. And therefore, it's the depth of market, the liquidity, the size of balance sheet that's really critical here. Now, if you then look at how the world works, and this is a sort of straightforward heads up to how we think about things, is that what you've got is a world where debt is accumulating fast. Okay. Now, one of the reasons that you've got this huge uh, you know, bonanza of debt out there is that central banks have made an absolutely crucial error, okay, which is what they've done is they've confused, uh, let's say, cost deflation with monetary deflation. Okay. So what they've said is that prices in the high street are under downward pressure, and therefore that's because monetary conditions are too tight. So what we're going to do is we're going to relax monetary conditions and we're going to chop interest rates. Okay. So what they've done is they've dropped rates. So they've incentivized people to take on more debt. Okay. And so what you've got is this huge uh, ballooning of debt going on because it's so cheap. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's, it really is a, a sort of no, no brainer this. Now, the problem is, is that that deflation, if you like, or disinflation, whatever you, whatever you call it, is because of the private sector becoming more efficient. It's because of, or maybe it's because of China uh, cutting costs, but effectively the cost base is going down. Okay, this is the experience uh, you know Western economies had in the 19th century. Uh, you know, you basically had situations where capitalism was very was very efficient, and it enabled costs to be cut, and so the price levels generally fell. That wasn't a bad thing. That's just economic efficiency. Central bankers shouldn't be getting involved in that. But what the central bankers recently have done in the last 10 15 years have cut interest rates so they've incentivized people to take on debt so the debt to GDP ratio has gone up now in a world where you've got uh, sluggish growth okay and let's say that debt is actually one of the factors that helps to make growth sluggish one of the things that you have to do is to you do have to finance your debt and you've got to make interest payments or whatever so if you get an economic slowdown what happens to supply it doesn't contract it actually speeds up so you get people actually producing more because they need the cash flow to actually pay their debts. So what you get is the compounding effect that you get this disinflationary uh, you know, trend established in the world economy. So effectively, the debt GDP ratios go up and they start escalating. More and more pressure comes. Now, when you come to refinance those debts, okay, the problem basically therefore is, is you need the liquidity to do that. So you've got to throw in liquidity. So not just the debt to GDP ratio goes up, but the liquidity to GDP ratio goes up. And that liquidity is used to fuel or is fuel for asset prices. So basically what you've got is if you look at the world economy, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, you've seen a rising debt GDP ratio and a rising asset price to GDP or asset price backdrop. And that's the world we're in. And that continues until it doesn't. And at the yes. moment, what central banks are doing is just throwing in liquidity, keeping interest rates low. And the bottom line here is that, you know, if you've got very low interest rates forever, you're bound to get high valuations in stock markets. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fact. I'm not going to say stock markets will go up and down, but they have to stay high. So, so to kind of recap it as, on like a very simplistic level, say I have a, let's, let's just use round numbers, a million dollar mortgage, right? Right. And I have an interest rate at 3% and growth is rolling over and interest rates are falling. 
and I can refinance that million dollar mortgage at now 2.5%. Yep. That means my interest payment goes down, but also my equity in my house rises because yep. you know interest rates have fallen, asset prices now rise, and you yep. can use that equity to borrow more and keep keep that debt-based financing going. Is that a fair yeah, that's like, that's yeah, exactly. That's another way of thinking about it. This is the role of collateral. So the, mm -hmm. the other thing which I hadn't really spoken about yet is that the whole financial system is now based more and more on collateral. So basically what's happening is that as asset prices go up, you've got more collateral you can borrow against. And so it makes the whole mm -hmm. system increasingly pro-cyclical. Now, the problem comes is that every time that central banks try and take the punch bowl away, okay, viz what's going on now, okay, What's the Federal Reserve doing? Well, it says it's doing some technical operations uh, to try and keep repo rates in line with Fed funds. Well, may, maybe maybe they are. Maybe they're, 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 it's a genuine belief. But they are taking liquidity out of the system. Just look at the data. Uh, the liquidity in U.S. Yeah. money market going down, right? The can, monetary base. Can you explain that dichotomy of how they're you know they're printing 120 billion a month or right. buying they're bonds buying that, on yeah. And that, but actually, on net, they're actually reducing liquidity using the reverse repos, correct? Yeah, 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 exactly. So look, what so what's going on is that what you've got to look at is the is not just the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. You've got to look at what you might call the effective balance sheet, which is the amount of uh, of that balance sheet which finds its way into money markets. Okay. Now there are two offsets to the money market flow. One is something called the Treasury General Account. And the Treasury General Account is basically an account uh, that the US Treasury maintains at, uh, at, the, uh, at the Federal Reserve. And it's, if you like, a pool of cash that is not circulating in the system. So the more that they build up their bank balance effectively at the, at the Fed, uh, the less of those, those dollars are circulating in the system. And one of the things that happened last year during the Trump administration is that the Treasury General Account you know, ballooned upwards to towards a trillion dollars, okay? And it's been run down to some extent through the, the Biden administration. And that has put liquidity back into the system, okay? Now, what's happening right now is that that's beginning to rebuild again, uh, a little bit, not much, but it's beginning to stabilize us. So the other factor which takes money, uh, takes, if you like, the balance sheet or reduces the balance sheet effective um, impact on the money markets is reverse repos. And what reverse repos basically is, it's the Federal Reserve borrowing from the private sector. Okay, so it's it's effectively uh, doing the reverse of what it's doing on a repo transaction. So a repo transaction, the Federal Reserve is effectively lending to the private sector based on what collateral <coughs> is a, is available, and a reverse repo is just doing the the other. So the, the 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 Treasury is basically borrowing from the private sector based on uh, uh, on uh, treasury bonds in its portfolio now that's taking money out of the system so mm. effectively what they're doing is they're giving the system collateral and they're, they're taking liquidity out and what's happening is that pool of liquidity is shrinking that's bad for future prices of risk assets correct yeah more, pretty much i mean what so what so what you've got is that uh, the amount of liquidity in the system drops now why is that important? It's because, going back to my previous statement, is that what the system is, is a refinancing system. Okay, 
So what it needs is it always needs liquidity to refinance existing debt. So if you're reducing the amount of liquidity in the system, it becomes trickier to refinance. So people then become more risk averse. So they basically shuffle down the risk curve and they say, well, OK, we're not going to hold high yield debt so much. We want it. We want treasury. And what you get is in a situation where there's a shortage of safe asset treasury, people start to hoard it and it then becomes, you know, it effectively yields start to spiral downwards much as they're doing now. So what mm. we've got is this situation whereby a little shake of the tree of the money tree, if you like, and, uh, you know, people get uh, very worried and start to shuffle back into into safe asset treasuries. And that's precisely what's going on. So the Federal mm -hmm. Reserve not saying that it's tapering. And I think the reason it's saying that or not saying that is it's too much of a risk, given what happened in the taper, taper tantrum before. And they're basically uh, gradually sort of uh, rowing into it. So they're doing this, they're doing their, their slowing or tapering, uh, you know, mm -hmm. surreptitiously um, through reverse repos. Very fascinating because this one really confused me until I started, you know, I, I looked a little bit into your work and I was expecting you get a CPI inflation print of 5% and, you know, pretty much every inflation metric we look at is is showing, you know, kind of growth. And you'd expect that 10-year yields would rise in that backdrop. But... You brought up something in one of your notes that was really fascinating, kind of changed my view. Um, can you talk about what's going on in China specifically and how the growth there is, is rolling over? And that actually, it correlates to kind of like 10-year yields, right? And, yeah. and how, you know, you even say, I think, U.S. policy might even be more driven by what's happening in China than anything else. Is that fair? Yeah, possibly. That's uh, that's uh, yeah, or certainly the, the what's happening in the U.S. bond market may well be uh, uh, derivative yeah. of that. So let let me let me come back and explain. So if you think of the fixed income markets, there are broadly speaking two moving parts uh, in yields. One is uh, let's think about real interest rates, the tips yield, and the other part is the break-even component. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. the the paradox in all this is that if you look at the uh, the real part of the interest rate. Uh, so in other words, the tips yield, that is a financial market phenomenon. OK, that's nothing to do with the real economy. It's all about the financial sector. And then if you look at the break even part, that's nothing to do with the financial sector. That's everything to do with the real economy. So it kind of reverses what many people have been thinking for, for decades about how the fixed income markets work. Now, mm -hmm. if you take the first component, first of all, which is the real uh, the real part, the, the tips yield, that is dominated by term premium. And term premium, which is a slightly wonkish concept, is basically all about the supply and demand for treasuries. OK, so in other words, if you get demand for safe assets, big demand for safe assets, then what you find is yields will drop and term premium will compress. Now, something like and I, I off the top of my head, I can't recall, but maybe it's something like two thirds of the movement in the treasury market over the last uh, 10 years have been all down to term premium movements. So it's a big, big effect. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, so you've got to understand term premium and term premium are about uh, safe asset demand and the availability of liquidity. Now, what you've had on that uh, on the term premium is that they've collapsed 
really uh, over the course of the last two months, pretty much. But certainly in the last month, they've come down very heavily. And mm -hmm. no one's really been expecting that. Now, if you look at what drives the term premia, it's our own friend, uh, the, the amount of liquidity in the system. And what you've basically had is because the Federal Reserve has been tapering, stealth tapering, if you like, uh, or de facto tapering through these reverse repos. It's reduced the amount of liquidity in the system. It's increased the demand for safe assets. And so what you've had, a term premium have dropped. And that's particularly evident in the in the tips market. If you want a quick heads up, look at the spread between uh, five-year tips and 10-year tips. That spread has come down dramatically. In other words, the real yield curve at the longer end is largely a term premium phenomenon. And that's collapsed. And that's because of liquidity. You can correlate that very, very closely. Take that to one side and now look at the inflation component. The inflation component comes back to China and what's going on. Now, that is uh, the, if you look at the break-even uh, inflation part, it's almost, uh, I say 100%, nothing's 100%, but it's, it's predominantly uh, real economy, real cycle effects. If you work out a very, very simple model, uh, and this is not sort of giving the game away, but you look at something like the US ISM index, you look at uh, gold prices, copper prices, and a cyclical currency like the Aussie dollar, look at those five factors, they explain the bulk of break-even inflation rates, okay? All cyclical factors, okay? Now, if you look at that, or the effect of those cyclical factors, they peaked about a month ago, and what they've been doing is essentially heading down. Now, what's the driver of that? The driver, if you look at the, the backdrop, is China and the Chinese economy. And the Chinese economy has basically uh, started to drop or looking, we, we calculate so-called daily economic surprise indexes from data releases. So uh, it's a little bit like the, uh, uh, the, what the City, Citibank do a similar thing of economic surprise indexes. Uh, mm -hmm. We do our own one. And if you look at those, what they showed is that around May the 15th, the Chinese economy took a very, uh, very clear uh, southwards path. It started to skid badly. And that was pretty much the inflection in the bond markets. Uh, now, why is China slowing down? Very difficult to say. Uh, it's not really because the People's Bank uh, in China have been tight. They've been running a pretty neutral policy. Um, it may be because of chip shortages. It may be because of the fact there was a directive from the Central Committee to say, stop using so many commodities because you're elevating the price. And that may be supply side factors that have slowed the Chinese economy. Looks like it's stabilizing a, little, stabilizing a little bit in the last few days on data releases. But nonetheless, it's come down with quite a big bump. And that's certainly influenced uh, inflation expectations uh, and the fixed income markets. But there are two moving parts. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's fascinating. I, I find, and this is probably just conjecture, but it, when, when China... You know, it's, they, they seem like they're centralizing um, power and closing off, you know, their capital counts. Yeah, so some, some of the technology listings and this sort of thing, you know, they, they, yeah. they, they put, yeah. now I think you now what you've got to look at, I think, is the is the sort of bigger picture in terms of what China is trying to trying to do. And the the reality here is that, you know, China is uh, a major exporter of dollars, um, you know, period that that's that's. But China's role in the, or so far the role of the world has been, it's exported huge amounts of dollars into the world financial system, you know, essentially through its trade accounts, but it's, it's recycled that stuff. Now, what China needs to do from an economic development point of view 
is stop being an exporter of dollars and start being an exporter of renminbi or yuan okay mm -hmm. and you need to make that transition now the us made that transition over 100 years ago okay when it basically displaced sterling and the us dollar uh you know basically became uh very quickly uh the world's dominant currency in the 1920s now it had a, a little bit of a setback in the 30s through the depression years uh, but certainly in the early 1920s uh, the US dollar was the was the preeminent currency worldwide and so I disagree with those economists that say this is the currency power is a long-run evolutionary slowly changing uh, event it's not it can happen very very quickly and if you look at what uh, what happened in the 19 well in fact World War one what happened was that uh, although the U.S. was a major trading nation uh, prior to World War One, everything was denominated in sterling, and most international bank loans were sterling-based. Okay, during World War One, uh, the Brits said, the British government said, uh, British banks can no longer lend internationally, uh, and so that market collapsed, and the Federal Reserve encouraged U.S. banks to step into that uh, uh, to that breach, and essentially what you saw was a dollar-denominated trade and essentially US banks developing a big big trade credit presence now if you go back to China and you think well hang on a second here China is pretty important in world trade uh, I forget what the figure it, it, it transacts is but it's something like 20% or whatever of, of all world trade is probably China uh, mm -hmm. and something like 95% of that I think is in, currently in dollars well it wouldn't take much for them to say well okay let's start denominating more in yuan and hey, if you want the yuan, there's Chinese banks here that can develop a trade credit market. So you can take one and say, well, OK, looks as if they could do that relatively easily. You think of another thing, which is basically uh, trying to encourage foreign capital to come in and buy your bond market and stock markets. Well, they've been doing that for the last 18 months and it's been pretty successful. So there's a lot of big appetite for Chinese debt because it's it's mm -hmm. you know, looks fairly robust and it's giving a decent yield. And you've got Chinese, you know, there's a big, deep Chinese stock market out there, which Westerners can have a look at. And then you've got the third thing, which is basically some sort of digital currency, digital renminbi or yuan, uh, which is there, you know, they're probably, I don't know, you, we can all conjecture five years ahead of the West, uh, whatever it may be. Now, it's not just the fact that they're developing the digital yuan. The main thing is they've got the infrastructure there. And if you there was a, a case in the media, I think about three months ago, where it said that Russia was developing its own digital currency, but it's using Chinese technology. Now, how many others are mm. going to do that? And I think that, you know, the issue is that the U.S. has been, um, you know, worryingly slow in actually getting out some sort of digital dollar or even some sort of bridging currency, uh, which can actually facilitate uh, transactions uh, you know, between digital currencies worldwide, digital, central bank digital currencies worldwide. You need that bridging currency. I mean, there's a wonderful mm -hmm. vehicle out there already, although it's embroiled in some SEC uh, investigation, which is Ripple XRP. I mean, that that's on the shelf already. That could be used. OK, and this is the sort of technology that the US has got to start pushing. Uh, but unfortunately, it's it's you know, it's it's behind the game. It needs to get in front uh, pretty rapidly. And when we need the dollar. Yeah. We, we don't want the yuan. And in, in how I mean, this is probably you're not held to this one, but 
uh, what do you, how do you think that all unwinds in terms of, are we going to be on a digital yuan or will the U.S. get their act together and create a, a U.S. stable coin? Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that eventually you'll start watching this stuff for asset prices uh, as the liquidity gets going. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so convinced you necessarily need a, a stable coin. I think what you need mm-hmm. is uh, you need, you need a, a U.S. dollar that people have got trust in. And the moment people do have trust in the dollar, uh, you know, it's a safe asset globally. It is the, the standard of value. And, you know, if, if it ain't broke, you know, why fix it? And I think that's that's true. But people want digital now and they want the ability. Mm-hmm. If, if all these different central banks are creating digital currencies, what you need is a bridging currency that will enable, uh, you know, very rapid transfers uh, between one currency jurisdiction and another. And effectively, what you need is a bridging currency to fill that gap that can allow instantaneous switches of money. Now, we've got the SWIFT system, but, you know, in all fairness, SWIFT is actually remarkably slow. And if you look at the banking systems, you know, banks banks are in the dark ages when it comes to trans- on, on foreign exchange, uh, particularly for retail uh, clients. It really is. And what you need is something which is much more digitized. And so I think that the, you know, the fact is that that technology needs to be out there pretty quickly. And the regulation, the regulatory environment needs to be made absolutely clear uh, ASAP. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that's what I think the SEC is sort of scrambling with at the moment, trying to do yeah, that. Yeah, I think Yellen just called that, that meeting between the CFTC, SEC, you know, uh, was it FDIC to try and get some sort of framework. Um, so I, I think you're right. It's probably coming down the pipe pretty soon. Um, but you, and then you, so I was okay. going to say, if you, one thing you, that is wor- well worth stressing in this whole debate is what are what are China's aspirations? And China's aspirations are 100 percent clear. Right. They want to displace the dollar, uh, if not globally, definitely in Asia. So there's a challenge mm-hmm. there. They, they, they've drawn a line in the sand and they are saying they don't want the dollar. They want the yuan to do- dominate. Now, as a sort of a, a point to ponder, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case because I don't know the I just don't know the answer to this. But just take a look at the stability of the Asian currencies in the last uh, four to five years. I mean, they've been remarkably stable, no volatility in the Asian currencies. It looks as if they've got de facto a currency block already there. Uh, now that may well have come out uh, of the uh, of the the G10 summit in 2016 in China, which was basically mm-hmm. named the Shanghai Accord. That may well have yeah. been something. We don't know that, but you know, uh, you know, is this this is the 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 Sherlock, You know, the you're familiar with the Sherlock Holmes story of the of the so-called dog that didn't bark. This is the dog that didn't bark. It's 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 remarkable. No volatility. Yeah, I- there. I've talked to um, Russell Clark. I don't know if you know him from he, he runs Russell Clark Investments, formerly Horseman Capital. And he said something happened in global markets in 2016 that changed the entire world. It used to be that, you know, the Asian money, the pension funds would go to um, an economy, invest in their assets. And then when they repatriated home, the yen would spike. The assets of whatever economy they invested in would fall. And he said something very interesting happened uh, in 2016 where that relationship kind of flipped. And he thinks that China, they should have devalued and they didn't. They made a political decision to essentially 
essentially what he he insinuates is they're they're keeping their their currency high to incentivize the growth of their middle class and that's what's sort of like they're incentivizing labor over capital now which is right. i don't know his read on things is that is that fair from your perspective well i think i i think there's certainly something going on there um mm -hmm. uh, I'm not too sure whether the motives are to, you know, in, uh, to, um, uh, you know, incentivize labor or capital. I'm, I'm not sure about that particular part of the debate. But I think that what you, what's clear is that China needs to financialize its economy. I mean, if you look at the the relative, uh, uh, the relative sophistication of China's industrial economy versus its financial system, uh, the financial system needs to catch up dramatically. And what you've got to, mm. what you've got to do is to start to see the, or what you will see is the financial sector grow. It's got to grow both domestically and uh, it's got to internationalize at the same time. And that is the thing that we've got to watch for. And, you know, mm -hmm. what what China needs to do, basically, if, the, you know, if you look at it from a, a sort of top down perspective, is that China's now got excess capital. OK, it needs to export that capital. I mean, many countries have been through the, you know, the same thing. I mean, Japan, Britain, America all had to export their capital best way to export your capital is against the background of your own currency and a firm uh, own currency. So what they do is they establish the yuan, the yuan as a reserve currency. And then what they can do is just export their capital. And then they get mm -hmm. huge national seigniorage. And that's part and of that's, the idea of the Belt and Road. The one, yeah, the Belt and Road initiative, right? That's, yeah, that, sort that's of what, what they're trying to do, plain and simple. And so maybe to get back to your what you're seeing about the Chinese economy slowing, are they basically just trying to take the wind out of the sails of these inflationary impulses so that they can kind of like make that next move? They, they don't want the inflation to get so bad where it bursts their credit bubble. They want to kind of contain it and then expand more uh, globally once they have this digital yuan, a banking system growing, and they can export that. That's You think that's sort of like the, the theory of what's going on? I think it, I think it could be. I think that they they want a stable environment. The Chinese like stability anyway. But I think what mm -hmm. they're what they're trying to do now is that they've that the shadow banking boom is behind them. They've more or less nailed that. The shadow banks are under control. And you know what you what you're looking at now is uh, is probably a, a an exchange rate regime which is uh, sort of fixed parity or more or less fixed parity de facto fixed against the U.S. dollar. So they're keeping. Uh, the yuan and other asian currencies pretty pretty stable and they're operating that their economy against that background and if you look at i mean we look at, at people's bank monetary operations on a daily basis and it strikes us that everything they're doing is is aimed at keeping that currency uh, their currency stable that it's exchange rate management and so mm -hmm. uh they're, they're that's effectively what they're doing so the boom bust in the chinese economy that we saw historically is not going to be around the cycle is being tamed if you like uh, now, let's put that in, into perspective and ma make two statements. Number one is that the Chinese financial system is, ain't going to fall apart. I mean, everyone everyone says this is you know this is a house of cards that's that's going to collapse. That that's not the case. Uh, sadly, the Western financial systems are more fragile because they're they're collateral based and that collateral is of questionable quality in many cases. Okay, so we've got mm -hmm. bigger problems. Make no mistake. The Chinese system is controlled very tightly by the People's Bank, and the liabilities are of the, sta of the state's liabilities. So they can step in, uh, you know, very easily if they need to. Okay, so that that's point number one. Point number two is that 
you know, I'm in the camp that says the Chinese economy, uh, you know, can't keep growing at, at 8% per annum or 7% per annum. Trees don't grow to the sky. It's going to come down. And it's probably going to come down to, to low, uh, lowest single digits. Okay, I accept all that. Uh, when I was in academia, I, I studied the, uh, the Soviet and Eastern European economies. And what you're seeing in China now is exactly the same thing. Okay. And basically, China will derail at some stage. The problem is that we could be, if you're looking at the Soviet Union, we could be 1960 here, and you're not. You're looking at uh, you know the thing derailing, uh, you know, 20, 30 years down the track. So you could still have two to three decades of growth for the Chinese economy, where the Chinese economy grows at two or three percentage points above uh, Western rates or the U.S. economy, which means that probably it's it's likely to grow by 50% in relative terms uh, over the next two decades. Now that's that's mm. big growth. Now if you put that into perspective, that means China is a really serious challenger, uh, both economically and more worryingly politically and militarily. And those are the challenges. Mm. So even though the growth rate's slowing down, it's still sufficiently above the US and it's coming from a low base to basically economically enfranchise uh, China and make it even stronger than it is today. And that's the worry. I mean, economic power used to be per capita income. It's now people. Interesting. And okay, so I have I have a couple follow up questions to that. So you, you talk about the reverse repos and the liquidity kind of on the front end of the curve, right? That's where a lot of the the risk averse um, bond investors are parked. Can you explain the dynamic of this boom in venture capital investing? Is that basically because rates are so low, there's no yield anywhere, uh, there's no growth to be found, and so you get the benefit of all these the duration investors, they kind of keep rates down in this refinancing scheme, and then VC gets the benefit because that the incremental liquidity that gets added moves to that super risky pocket of the economy. Is that sort of I think, I think what's going yeah. on? I think you nailed it. I think it's exactly that. And I think what you've yeah. had is that the catalyst of change uh, is basically China or the uh, or competition from uh, from Asian Asian markets, Asian firms. And mm -hmm. what it means, you've got these. I mean, let let's think of these companies or the, these economies as command economies. I mean, I include Japan, Korea, Taiwan in that in that basket, too. Uh, they're not necessarily operating for profit in the same way as as we think of in the West or in the US. OK, what they're doing is they're basically is pushing out product. Uh, think of them much more as being command economies. And so uh, what's what you're facing in the West is uh, big declines in cash flow. And, uh, you know, that's where you need restructuring. And so what you so this has sort of launched a restructuring boom, which has been facilitated by low interest rates. So mm -hmm. that I think explains the venture capital bit. I mean, look look at the big energy companies or the big pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they're basically sort of trimming off some of their peripheral businesses and sort of trying selling them off because they want to sort of focus on their cause to try and get their return on capital up or whatever it may be. And I think you know mm -hmm. the, the the what you what you're looking at if you look at um, look at economic data, I mean, the, there's an interesting difference between the marginal return on capital in the West, which has collapsed, and the average return on capital, which has actually gone up. Now, how do you square that? 
It's because the average return on capital is all about restructuring existing costs, okay? Making your existing assets sweat them even more, okay? Get your mm -hmm. returns up on existing assets. The marginal is about new capital spend. Well, nobody's really doing that. And that's where, I guess, the fiscal will, will come into play for the U.S. Um, why you're seeing Biden say, hey, 3.5 trillion coming down the pipe. Is there, they need to kind of, like you said, the CapEx has come down to negligible amounts, right? Don't they right. need, I guess the, the government needs to step in, fill the gap so that we actually invest in like future growth industries rather than just keep this refinancing scheme going um, yeah, I think that's right. right. I mean, you, you, need, you need to create, you, you've got to create growth. But I mean, the, 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 the plain fact is that the state has to involve itself, involve itself much, much more in that process. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of a tricky one. And, you know, I mean, although, you know, it's uh, a fairly sort of glib point to make, but if you look back, I mean, what caused the post-war boom? I mean, apart from the fact that there were, there were, there were sort of favorable demographics. I mean, that, that's clearly true. But it was the mm -hmm. devastation of World War Two that everything had to be rebuilt, right? Uh, and you know the the amount of spending uh, on new capex was huge, okay. Um, and plus, the fact you had baby boomers which wanted you know more mouths to feed or more things to buy. Now, what you've got now is you don't have the luxury of the baby boom generation. It actually is kind of working in reverse, as we all know. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. mean to say you can't get growth, but it's you've got more of a headwind. But you need a radical change in the capital in the capital stock, and so what you've got to do is to start investing if that's what you want to do, uh, big time. So it means a lot more, uh, you know, state-involved infrastructure spend, uh, maybe the green agenda, that could work. But I mean, these numbers are going to be huge, and that requires a mindset change, which means that you don't go for these austerity policies uh, that have been favoured by the IMF and whatever uh, of reducing fiscal spending. Uh, because that actually increases the burden on the private sector. The more austerity there is in the public sector, the more the, the, the sort of the more bitter the pill that the private sector has to swallow. You've got to get the private sector flush with cash to get growth. And so what you need is the state to start spending big time. Now, clearly there are political issues in that, an ideological mm -hmm. issue, whether we want to face that or not. But these, these, are, these yeah. are the facts that come out. It, so interesting. So, so judging from let's go go back to your numbers in this is a perfect uh, pivot point so you said central bank liquidity is at 29 trillion dollars um however central bank balance sheets in aggregate shrunk by 204 billion in june which is the right. first monthly decrease since the beginning of the covid crisis and right. you're expecting that number from global central banks to hit 32 trillion in i guess the next uh back half of the year or is what's the time frame on that well i mean that yes i mean i mean the answer is that probably over the next six months you might see that order of growth and i think that the you know without sort of you know you, i think one can dance on the head of a pin a little bit with, the, with some of these numbers but i think at the end mm -hmm. of the day what you've got is a slowing down in the growth of uh, uh of central bank balance sheet size i mean bear in mind where we came from we came from about 20 we got up to 30 and now we're probably edging towards you know 32 or something but clearly the growth mm -hmm. rate slowed down and more particularly what you've seen is that the us has begun to shrunk not it's not necessarily its balance sheet but its effective balance sheet which is what i think of as uh, the monetary base or reserve money in the us 
mm-hmm. because of these repos. So technically, the U.S. is shrinking. Yeah. So no. how do you play that? If the growth rate is rolling over, then you know you've you also said we've had peak liquidity because every central bank was printing money. However, you no. know, as far as the cows can, can see, and then you had peak peak economy as well because you were coming on such a low base from the economic standpoint. And China's rolling over. We've seen that. Yeah. So are we going to get like a little liquidity shock here in risk assets? Um, you, you, I think you had a chart that showed, you know, inverse, uh, the VIX is correlated to the inverse uh, business confidence, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And which kind of shows that we might be heading for a little rocky patch in risk assets. Is that I fair? Think, no, I think that's right. I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's kind of deserved. We need a pause, pause for breath, you know, after what have been heady gains. I think that's right. But mm-hmm. I think you know, what you've got to, what you've got to think about is that it's a longer term perspective. And that is that, you know, where do you put your money? And I think the answer is that you don't want to put your money in bond markets uh, over the medium term when you're, you're going to get, you know, a 1% or 1, 1.25% yield on the 10 year over that time horizon. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are pitiful returns, okay? Particularly if you've got a little bit of inflation in the system. So, you know, yeah. that's point number one. Therefore, stocks are really the, the only place in terms of financial assets to look. And if interest rates remain low, you're going to get high valuations. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it's it's like a, you know, it's a calm lake, because what you're going to see is a lot of volatility. There will be waves, and those waves are waves of liquidity. And basically, uh, you know, what we're seeing now is uh, probably a, a moving towards a small risk-off period, because central banks are taking liquidity out of the system, and it'll spook uh, those people that have to do refinancing. It's more difficult to get funds in this environment. Uh, now, there's no question people argue this point with me. There's no question there's bucketfuls of liquidity out there now, okay? But what I'm trying to do is to look forward six months and say, well, okay, if there may be a lot of liquidity now, but if the Fed is starting to sneak it out, then you're going to get uh, a different situation six months hence. It's going to be a lot more tricky. So if you need to you know, take the money out of the market, not a bad time to do it now, um, and then maybe venture back uh, towards the end of the year. Makes sense to me. So I think that that's how I would kind of see it. Now, uh, you know, are we going to see an instance where the Federal Reserve is forced to come back and do another QE? You bet <laughs> it's going to come it's, because at the end yeah. of the day, that's how the system is now operating. It's, you've basically got a fragile financial system in the West that is based on collateral. Every time they start to pull liquidity out, you've got a wobble. And so they've got to put it back again. And, you know, mm-hmm. they'll be. You know, we're up to uh, what's this? This is QE six, as I've counted it. There'll be a QE seven, a QE eight, a QE nine, QE ten. It's it's like a bottle of pills of tranquilizers that you, or aspirins. You just need to keep taking to cure this debt so, headache. And, and this is where I wanted to pivot to, like you know, more social ramifications. Because like, in I'm 37, I have two two little kids now, and where the heck do I put my money? And also, what are the ramifications of all this? Because clearly, like, is this just an all-out, um, I guess, war on on labor? Because if you get hit with financial inflation forever in this debt refinancing scheme, and you don't have any financial assets to keep up with the inflation, does that, is that sort of like the Weimar? Uh, you get the haves and the have-nots types type of thing. What, what does the next generation do in these scenarios? 
it's a it's a very interesting analogy uh, that you draw actually, because that was that was exactly uh, you know what happened in in, in Weimar was that uh, effectively if you looked at the at the inflation what the inflation did in Weimar was to economically enfranchise the younger generations and disenfranchise the older generations because the older generations principally had debt uh, they lost out badly from the hyperinflations. Uh, whereas the younger generation could understand the stock market and the need to buy into uh, assets that protect you against rising prices. So there, there was a huge shift of wealth in Germany uh, in the 1920s, early, well, up, up to the you know, end of the 20s, that period, that decade. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was you know, one of the things that, you know, sadly launched the, the Nazi party, uh, that yeah. you had this generation where had wealth that were sort of fooled by, um, you know, uh, Adolf and Kurt. And that was that was the that was the, the problem. Uh, now, if you if you look at what's happening now, I think you I'm not going to say you've got the same situation, but you've got a situation where wealth is becoming polarized. But it's going the other way because you've got elevated asset values, uh, which I you know, can foresee continuing for some time. Uh, you're going disenfranch- to disenfranchise the younger generations and the older generations have got all the wealth. Now, I mean, what's one of the only ways you realistic ways you you change that well i think that you know you can say well okay uh inflation is not really a a remedy because that's a bad thing generally for the whole community so what you need to do is uh try to get wages up okay now how do you get wages up the only way you can really do that is to run the economy really hot okay so you you get there's got to be a lot of government spending going on to actually do that that may be one thing and maybe the governments can actually help that by actually creating more jobs or, or higher pay higher pay or whatever it may be but that's a way of actually getting wealth in another way may be uh you know higher taxes i mean that's an unappealing thing <laughs> feature for almost everybody but it may, maybe that's the reality you've got to start doing that or wealth taxes or death duties or whatever whatever one likes to do um mm. those are possibilities I think the other one, and I've, I've thought about this as whether this is actually a viable solution, is actually the green agenda. Maybe the green agenda is is the equivalent of inflation in Weimar Germany, and it's something that the younger generations understand better than the older generations who are wedded to the old technologies, the brown technologies, uh, rather than the green ones. And effectively, uh, what you need to do is to effectively change it. Everything, if you like, goes upside down. And... Uh, the older generations, everything they've got is old technology needs to be replaced. And uh, the younger generations, if you like, are making it or in the businesses that are producing this. And maybe that's the basis of a wealth transfer. Now, I don't know what the scale of that could be, but maybe that's a, that's an option. But you can see that the, the range of options is not big. And otherwise, you're going to get a lot of social tensions. Yeah. And what we're doing at BlockWorks is... We're, we're trying to bridge the gap between like macro finance and, and the crypto community because I think crypto could be a technology that also it's it's kind of green I guess you could say um, depending on the narrative you listen to and and the potential for future jobs in this stuff is is enormous like you know it could be like the internet um, and so that's that's the bet we're making. Yeah, crypto is another example. I think crypto. I mean I, I believe in crypto but. You know, you've got to accept this. It's a volatile area by definition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and so it goes hand in hand. And that's why, you know, hopefully we'll be following your work uh, much more closely when, you know, we're going to see giant, giant pockets of money come in 
because you need the growth rates of you know on twenty or thirty thirty trillion dollars to to be incrementally go, going up, right? Like right. for the market to continue to pay off the debts. Um, so so I'll continue to, to watch your work, Mike. But this has been an absolute pleasure. I learned uh, so much, and and thank you so much for doing this. Great job, pleasure, pleasure. Great to be on. All right, talk soon. Take care. Thanks a lot. See you now. Bye.